Hebrews chapter 2. So what we'll do tonight is we will frame our thoughts around uh, this section of the remaining portion of chapter 2 by remembering sort of how we got to where we are. And the best way to do that would be to remember back to verse 6, which is a quote from Psalm 8. I put it at the top of your page there, where the writer of Hebrews asked the question, well, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? And so really we're still sort of driving at the response to that question. Why is it that this God who created the heavens and the earth, why is this amazing, sovereign, and wonderful God fiddling around with these little, finite, rebellious creatures, mankind? What in the world is he thinking? And so as we pressed into this issue, we landed last week on verse 10 where Pastor Matt uh, dealt with just the way in which God has chosen to do it. And the Bible says that for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder or the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. And so when he, last week when, when Pastor Matt put all that together in the sentence, which is essentially our sovereign God chose suffering for our good and His glory. Now, that's the kind of thing that we say all the time. And we would say that, and it sounds uh, perfectly acceptable and wonderful to us, and there's nothing revolutionary or controversial about that, except for the fact that you're not, you're not sitting where the people are sitting who are hearing uh, the book of Hebrews for the very first time. And you're not sitting where many people have sat since then and probably are sitting right now, where you would ask the question, why in the world would a God who is sovereign choose suffering? If he's sovereign, then he can do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do, with anyone whom he chooses to do it, and in any way he wants to do it. Why would he choose suffering? And how would that possibly work out for our good and for his glory? And so essentially what verse 10 is telling us is that Christianity exists. What it is in its purest sense. What the gospel is, is the way it is because it perfectly expresses the perfections of God. It expresses the, the way God is. The question that we're going to ask tonight is, why? why? Why did God choose suffering? Why did it have to be that way? Why does this make any sense? I mean, why is all of this the way that it is? Because, believe me, if you were sitting, if, if you were sitting there being... Uh, literally pummeled because you have placed your faith in Jesus or you've associated yourself with Christianity. And so you're, you're suffering financially, you're suffering relationally, you're, you're, you fear for your life, people are being burned at the stake and every other sort of thing because they follow Jesus. Well, why? Why is this the way that it is? I mean, there's so many questions why they come to my mind. You know, it's, it's God, why, well, why is it that when people become Christians, you don't just take us home to be with you? Why don't you, why do you, why don't, why don't you free us from all the earthly suffering? Or why don't you ensure that we're going to be okay? Or why, I mean, why is it the way that it is? And so, so that God might have for himself a spiritual family where all the children are deeply united, not only to one another, but also to Jesus himself. That God's agenda here in reconciling us to himself and then creating this earthly family that would then 
be the catalyst for change around the globe. That's really what beginning in verse 11 starts to deal with. Notice what, how, how the writer of Hebrews phrases this. For he who sanctifies, look at verse 11, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Now, it's at this moment where the founder, the captain of our salvation, is turning on the fasten the fashion seatbelt signs because what he's saying is Jesus is not ashamed of you. Now, I don't know if just reading that or seeing that or hearing me say that affects you initially like it ought to. But what we need to do is we need to just sort of breathe this in for a moment and realize that God really ought to be ashamed of us. He would have every reason to be ashamed of us. No one would be astonished if he were ashamed of us, but the fact that he is not ashamed of us is what's so hard to comprehend, which is what we're being told here. Is that somehow this... Sovereign God is not ashamed to call people like me and you his family. Now, we can look at that from both sides of the coin. We can think about it from God's perspective and all the reasons why he has every right. It would make perfect sense. We're, we're not like him. We are uttering complete failures apart from Him. Not only that, we have proven that we're untrustworthy and that we are out for ourselves and that we seek to, for our, to take glory for ourselves and steal glory that's due to Him. All of those things are true. And then as all of that is true in the way that God could relate to us, at the same time, we have this voice in our head that's always reminding our us of how we're even ashamed of ourselves at times and that we are the the best in the world at condemning ourselves and that we are the ones who can uh, continually remind ourselves of all the things that we have done that we shouldn't have done and all the reasons why and so on and so forth around around it goes and in the midst of all of those things happening the reality of who we are and who God is, the reality of how well we know who we are in our own head and how the voice in our head wants to remind us of that continually, God enters into that space and says, no, I'm not ashamed of you. So Jesus, in effect, is not ashamed to call you his spiritual brother or his spiritual sister, which is mind-boggling information. He's not embarrassed by you. You see, you have people, because we all do, we all have people that we're related to that, quite frankly, we're a little embarrassed by. And... There's those moments where uh, a family gets together and all the extended family comes and, you know, you at least have that one super weird uncle that you wish you didn't have. Uh, maybe you have, you know, you're like me and it's pretty much uh, every limb on the tree is a freak show. I don't know, but suffice it to say... We all have people that we would be embarrassed to associate with, but we're connected to. Now, 
The thing is, is that on our best day, on the best day that you've ever strung together, the best, the best moments you've ever, you, you've ever consecutively, you know, uh, put together in, in one day or a section of a day or whatever it is, on your best day, all you have to offer God is filthy rags. You don't, none of us even come close to measuring up. And yet, God, think about this. Now, we are people. You were born a, a man or a woman. Believe it or not, that's going to be controversial pretty soon. But you were born a man or a woman. And, and at birth, you were unfit. You, you, you came into this thing unfit, and you just simply racked up all sorts of uh, debt on top of that to where you, you couldn't be in the presence of God. You couldn't do that. So the pe- whoever the person that you can think of that is the person you at least want to associate yourself with, at least they could be in your presence. At least you could be in their presence. You can't even be in God's presence because we're so removed from him because of all the things that we've done against him. And God comes along and he creates a situation whereby he would say, and gloriously happy to tell everyone that they're in my family. Now you see, I'm related to some people that I wish I wasn't related to, but I am. And so essentially, if you come up to me and ask me if I'm related to them, well, then I will say, well, yes, I'm related to them because I am. But if you don't ask me, then you're never going to know because I'm not walking around telling people that I'm related to them. I'm not walking around going, yes. I am related to them. No. But God is telling us in 11 through 13 that essentially he's happy to make it known that we're in his family. That Jesus is saying, hey, he's my brother or she's my sister. We together are one which is mind-blowing information. How in the world can Jesus create a family of fallen, broken sinners that he would joyfully and gladly declare, they're my people. I'm with them. They're with me. They belong to me. I mean, think about this. Think about who's saying this. Jesus says, I'm proud to declare to everyone that these Christian men and women are the ones the Father has given me. They're mine, and I love them. Do you, do you feel that way? Do you Now, there's probably times in your life where you feel more inclined to, you know, say yes, that that's a reality. And there's times in your life where you feel less inclined. And I would guess that the times that you feel more inclined are the times when you perceive things in your life as going well. And the worse things are going, the less likely we are to connect that, you know, we're part of God's family and He loves us and He's he's proud to call me His brother because what I'm going through doesn't make me feel like I'm part of His family, right? Now remember the situation that the book of Hebrews is speaking into. 
It's to people who would not feel this at all in a, in a physical sense, in an earthly sense, in a circumstantial sense at all. So if you still think Jesus is ashamed of you because of maybe how you look or how you talk, because you don't always look the way you ought to look, because so many times we have this idea in our head that there's a certain way that we ought to look or there's a certain way that we ought to talk and there's a certain way that we ought not to talk. And, but nobody's really clear as to exactly what all of those things would encompass. But here's what we do know, that we fall short. And some of you struggle with these issues or maybe it's because you continue to fail or because you can't hold a job or pay your bills. You know, you've been trying to accomplish something for a long time. And you know what? You stink at it. You keep failing at it. And you keep trying and you keep failing and you keep trying and you keep failing. And I don't know what that is, but I do know this. I know what it feels like to fail. And I know that when you have a hard time vocationally, it's very easy for people to come down on you and look down on you and feel sorry for you and put you down. And in a lot of ways, you get into a situation that many things are beyond your control. You know, I wonder, I wonder when the phone rings and on the other end of the phone is a collection agency. And they're telling you that you're behind, you're deficient on your payment. And you haven't made the payment that you're supposed to make. And maybe it was just an omission and you missed the payment. Or maybe you didn't quite have enough margin to make the payment. And so you're trying to negotiate until the next paycheck comes in or something else happens or whatever the case may be. But here's what I know, that in that moment, that's not a proud moment. It's a shameful moment. You don't feel good. And here's what you don't want. You don't want to think about the fact that Jesus knows that you stink at paying your bills. He knows that you're, you slack off at your job and don't do a good job. He knows that you're always trying to do something and failing at it. He knows that. You think Jesus is ashamed of you because what about the silly things that come out of your mouth? You know, what about the proud moment when you begin to quantify the tens of thousands of hours of your life that have been spent on just frivolous things. It's just wasted time. It makes no difference. It'll never make a difference. It's just gone. All the, the time that you've spent having conversations about some sporting event that's meaningless. It's just meaningless. But you've spent all kind of, invested all sorts of energy in it. What about all the time you've invested watching television or all the time you've invested on Facebook or just think about it. Think about, think about how common it is for someone in our culture to be wrapped up in some hobby. And so there, it would just be completely normal for any of you in this room to, to spend 10 to 15 hours a week doing something that has zero eternal value whatsoever. And if we're honest, we could go around the room and we could... The truth of the matter is, is that most of us really stink at managing our time. You stink at it. You stink at controlling your tongue. You stink at being devoted and dedicated to the things that you want to be. I mean, there's so many opportunities for you to rise up and go, yes. Jesus ought to be ashamed of me. I mean, my goodness, half the time I'm ashamed of me. Or what about, what about, all, the, uh, what about all the things that you accomplish? By the grace of God. What, how much could you accomplish? Well, hang on. 
Let's see if we can get to where we need to be. There you go. There. Because you think you've never accomplished anything of value. So what have you done? What's your big, you know, so Mr. Christian, Miss Christian, what is it that you've accomplished? What, what difference have you made? How is the world a better place because you showed up on the scene? All these reasons Jesus should be utterly and completely ashamed of us, but think again, he's not. You see, the thing about it is the Scripture comes along and says, no, I'm not ashamed to call you brother or sister. And it's beyond that. It's not, Jesus isn't saying that, you see, if you, if you look closely at what the text says here, it's not that Jesus will admit that we're with him. It's that he takes initiative to say, hey, they're with me. They're with me. I'm not ashamed of them. They're, they're my people. You see, God's saying, listen, you don't have to have it all together. You know that? Sometimes we just need to be reminded that you don't have to have it all together. Newsflash. If you could have it all together, which you can't, and you never have, and you never will. If you could have it all together, you wouldn't need a Savior. The reason you need a Savior is because you don't have it all together. That's why we need Him. And so he's not ashamed of you because you don't have it all together because you've never had it all together. And he knew that before he accepted you, before he received you. And you see, so, listen, it's not, it's not God saying, you know, listen, I'm so proud of you. Why don't you just keep on slacking? You know, don't worry about it. doesn't matter. That, that's not what God's saying. What God's saying is, I love you. I know everything about you. I'm the one that invented intimacy. I'm the only person who can know everything about you and yet still love you. There's no one on the planet that can ever know you like he does, and yet he loves you. See, he knows all the thoughts in your head that never make it out of your mouth, that your spouse will never know you thought. He knows them all, and yet he still loves you. Now, for example, in Luke chapter 15, where the Scripture says that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous who don't. Why is that? Why is it that the Scripture says that the angels peer down and marvel at salvation? What blows their mind, what the angels can't compute, is how this God whom they exist in the presence of, who's so magnificent and holy and amazing and wonderful, what they can't compute is how He would become a man and go to the earth and live as we live and die for us and then receive us into his family. And when, when, we, when we're saved, when we, when we become his children, that floors heaven. Heaven throws, the, the biggest parties in heaven are when sinners repent. But here's the thing, nobody comes, nobody comes, that's not a sinner. Everyone who comes is a wreck. Everyone that comes is a misfit. That's the only way you can come. Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous. He didn't come for them. So just pause for a moment. Let's ask ourselves a couple questions. All right? How, what could we really accomplish? By the grace of God, if we believe that Jesus is not ashamed to call me his brother or sister. I just want you to think with me for a moment. If you woke up tomorrow and you started your day 
with the assumption under the reality that God's not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. How would that affect your impact, your usefulness? Think about how powerful shame is in our life. Think about how often would I openly share my faith with non-Christians if I really believed that Jesus wasn't ashamed. You know why people don't share their faith with unbelievers? It's because they're ashamed. They're ashamed of how little they know. They're ashamed that they're going to ask, be asked a question they don't know how to answer. They're ashamed that they're going to share their faith and be rejected. It's all shame-based. But if you knew that Jesus wasn't ashamed of you, then how would that impact your boldness? You see, if you knew that the one you were talking about, the one you were representing, fully embraces and receives you the way you are in this moment right now, wouldn't you just be fearless in the face of that shame? Wouldn't you just begin to share with people about the goodness of God? And Yes. But you know why so many people don't? Because of shame. What would I be inclined and empowered to do in this local church if I really believe that Jesus wasn't ashamed of me? How many times have you thought to yourself, I could do that or I'd like to do that. And then the next thought was, but I can't. I'm not ready. I'm not spiritual enough. I don't know enough. I, I, no one would, would, would encourage me or want me or allow me or endorse me or, you, you know what, you know what, what, what happens? Remember when I talked about, you know, you don't, you don't look right or dress right. It's just, isn't this the same thing? It's the same thing. One minute you think, you, 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 you see something and go, I'd like to be a part of that. I'd like to do that. I'd like to. But the very next thing is, yeah, but, but I can't. And even the confident people go, but maybe sometime in the future. You see, but I got I to gotta learn more. I got to know more. I got to prepare myself. I got to ready myself. I got to. Is that really the way it works? Is it really that we, we need to get ourselves together before we can do something? Is that, you see, no. But just knowing in your heart that God's not ashamed of you, if you know that, you'll just start walking through doors. You'll just start taking liberty. You'll start, start seizing moments and, and opportunities will become realities in your life because if you knew God's not ashamed of you, would you really worry what someone else thought or if you didn't know everything you thought you needed to know or whatever the case may be? I don't think so. I think we think subconsciously a lot of times that God's ashamed of us. And I think that we work really hard to perpetuate that belief in our head by the thoughts that we think about ourselves, the way we self-condemn. So I ask these questions. How, would, how could Jesus be one with us and empathize with our pain and distress if he himself never suffered? See, that's a good question. And how could he ever suffer if he were not a human being, a, a man like us? In other words, God in himself can't suffer. Right? Just think about it. Jesus in heaven, how can he suffer? What can make him suffer? What has power, authority? I mean, nothing. Nothing can make him suffer. He cannot suffer. 
The only way that he can suffer is he has to become something that can suffer. You see, the only way that he'd be able to, to, to empathize with our pain and our distress is that he would have to suffer. But he's unable to suffer in and of himself. So that's the problem that has to be resolved. So when Jesus came, he shared our human nature and also our suffering. Is he Is he masquerading as a person? Is he pretending to be a man when he's on earth? Is it Jesus just wearing skin? In other words, is it God in skin walking around pretending to be one of us? You know, in other words, is Jesus in this really authentic Halloween costume as a man? Is that what the whole thing is? Well, no, because it wouldn't work. He has to be us so that he can empathize with us. He has to be us just so he could suffer. So he shared our human nature and our suffering because he's one with us. He wasn't pretending to be us. Now, how do we know, how do we know that Jesus didn't come disguised as a human? How do we know God didn't come disguised as a human? Because when he came, he came in such a way that that couldn't happen. He didn't come as a person, as a, as a grown man. He came as a baby, and then he grew. He lived and grew up. And so he was fully human and fully God at the same time. Therefore, he could have all that God is and all that we are, and therefore he could suffer and he could he could endure and he could experience, he, he could walk the way we walked and he could identify with us as members together of, as one spiritual family. See, he knows that because he's, he's been where we are. And therefore, that's how the basis for why he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. See, he's not ashamed because... He became one of us. He did that. So he couldn't just decide, well, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to resolve the problem that people have and invite them to be with me. No. In order for that to happen, he had to pay the debt that we'd amassed. Well, in order for the debt to be paid, he had to pay it as one of us. So see, all the pieces had to fall together. So the point I'm trying to make is that if Jesus becomes one of us, he makes himself like one of us, well, then in that is the basis for the understanding of him not being ashamed. So although he's God, and thus in one sense he's Infinitely different from us. Infinitely different. But in becoming man through the incarnation, he now shares our nature. So therefore, he can identify with us in such a personal way. He can say, they're my family. Now look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, let's break this down and follow some steps. First of all, you're human, right? 
Yes, you're human. So here you are, human. Now, those Jesus loves are human. Therefore, he became human. Because the object of his affection is human. So in order to resolve it, he has to become human. So you're human. He loves humans, so he becomes human so that he might die for you. Because it's the only way it could work. So in his own divine nature, he's indestructible. He can't die. God can't die. But yet death is necessary to deal with the guilt and the shame and the punishment for sin. So Christ becomes human precisely so that he could die, so that he could be like us and walk with us. And this is what love does, right? Love embraces suffering even to death for the life of others, for the good of others. So therefore, this sovereign God chooses suffering for our good and His glory. Now it all starts to fit together. We start to see how... But that's only step three. What about step four? That He might die for us now... What is that? So to nullify the deadly power of the devil. So the power that Satan exerts over death, what is that power? What are the, the, what's the scope of his power when it says that he might destroy the one who has the power of death at the end of verse 14? Well, it's the ability to instill fear, the fear of death in the hearts of men and women who know God. He has the power to make us fear that. So what he does, he terrorizes humanity with the prospect of dying. And in doing so, he exerts control and he poisons our lives and he turns our joy and our peace into misery and despair. By making us fearful and dreadful. and So he nullifies this power that the devil has over death. See, it would seem that if Jesus dies, then that's a victory for the one who has the power over death, right? Number five, so that you might be freed from slavery to fear and to live in freedom for the rest of eternity. You see, through his death, it appeared Easter Saturday that he lost and that evil had won and that darkness prevails, but he defeated death by his resurrection. So we've, through him, been set free. So now, hmm, we don't have to live in this sort of fictional world where we deny the reality of death. We don't have to do that. We know that death is real. We know that death comes to, to all people. But we know certain things about death. That death isn't something that we need to fear because death isn't... Death is just a transition for us. And it's a transition to something that we know is better. And if you know something's better, you never fear the transition to something that you know is better because it wouldn't make any sense. So let's think about how death is perceived in our culture. Let's think about the fact that people are so wigged out by death, nobody wants to talk about it or think about it. And if you, if you spend any time around uh, funerals, then, boy, you, you see the whole spectrum. And so you see believing families who gather at a funeral or 
Christians who gather at a funeral and celebrate the life of the loss of a loved one, and they're sad because the loved one is gone and removed from their life, but they're grateful because they know where the loved one is. But do you ever go to other funerals? Do you ever, you ever go to the, the funeral home when all, there's a bunch of people standing outside? They won't go in the door. They won't go in the door. They're so freaked out, they won't even walk in the door. They won't go in there. They won't talk to anybody. They, don't, they, they won't pay their respects. They, won't, they can't. They can't handle it. They don't want to think about it. Now, here's the thing. Don't you want to shake them and go, did this surprise you? Did this sneak up on you? Were you somehow thinking that this wasn't, you know, even if it was, if it was early on or even, I mean, listen, but you had to know it was coming, right? We all know it's coming at some point, but we push it out of our mind. We don't think of it. We act like it's, it's not something we want to think about, give any thought to. We want to pretend that it doesn't exist. Okay, then. Well, if you don't believe in God, then why are you afraid? Because if you don't believe in God, if you would consider yourself to be an atheist, which so many people you talk to today would claim to be, well, then they're the one, they're, the first thing you ought to know about them is they have no fear of death. Because if death is just nothing, See, when you die, it's just over. It ends, and there's nothing. There's, there's no more feelings. There's no consciousness. There's, no, you just, there's just nothing. It's just the end. Well, then who's afraid of that? Now, death for an atheist would be sad because you'd be separated from people and you'd miss things, but you wouldn't be afraid of it because why would you be afraid of nothing? In one other context, would you say, I'm petrified. What are you afraid of? Nothing. Well, Why? What's there to be afraid of? It's nothing. Or is the fear of death proving that deep down inside, they have no confidence in nothing? And they're worried that maybe there's something. The only thing that explains this fear is that there must be a concern that there's something and they're not sure what the something is. And oh boy, what if the something is what you think it is and what I don't think it is. Then what am I going to do? And therefore, I'm afraid. Now, what about us? Why would a Christian be afraid of a transition into a better place? I am of the firm belief that one of, if not the greatest opportunity in your life to be a witness for the gospel is as you die. That's what I think. The most impactful testimonies are the people who die with peace and assurance and confidence and what it does to all the people around them. Now, if there, was a, if there was a reason to, for God to be ashamed of us, it would be at the amount of Christians that, that are literally petrified to die. Now, let's think, let's explain that. What, what is, where does that come from? How does a Christian become afraid to die? Because clearly the scripture says that it's merely a transition, but it's to something better, which we do all the time. There's not one day that goes by in your life that you don't transition from something to something better. You do it multiple times every day with ease. And the reason you do is because you have utter assurance that it's better. So it's, it's not afraid of you. It's not fearful for you. So here's what you do. You pull up to your house in your car, you drive into the driveway and you turn your car off and you look at the distance from where you are to where your front door is and you 
take that last breath of air conditioning, and then you open the door and you step out into this hellish environment, and you go from there to that door, but, the, but on the other side of that door is cool air. And you're transitioning out of that, that car. You got to go through this to get to something better. So you transition into that. And, and so no one's ever come to your house, and there you are sitting in your car. And they're like, What are you doing? You go, I'm, I'm, I'm just sitting here. Why? Why? Because I'm, I'm scared. What are you scared of? Well, I'm scared to go in there. Well, why are you scared to go in there? Well, I don't know if the air conditioner works, I don't know if it's better. I'm not sure it's better. You see, if you, if you think someone's in there waiting to get you, then you're going to sit in your car. Or if you think, but if you are convinced that what's through that door is better than what you got right now, you know what you do? You get out of your car and you go straight to it because you know it's better. So what's everybody freaked out about? Because they don't believe it's better. They're not sure it's better. Maybe... Maybe you believe it's better. It's just not better for you. Because you can't get it all together. Because you stink at paying your bills. Because you don't look right. And you don't talk right. And Jesus comes along and says, guess what? I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed to call you my brother. I'm not ashamed to call you my sister. You're in my family. You're part of me. So let me tell you something. When you take your last breath in this life, you are going to transition to something infinitely better. So there's no reason to fear unless you don't believe that. So you see that the, all the people running around that are petrified of death but don't believe in God, they got a problem. And the only way you can explain that is the law of God must be written on their heart. And they, that's why they can't have confidence that there's not something else. Because if they were sure that it was nothing, death would only be something sad, be no problem. But they're not sure. And then you got Christians afraid of death. So they must not be convinced that what they're transitioning to is better. Look at verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, again, think of the context. It would make sense that if someone was going to get help, it would be the angels. But no, it's not. It's the offspring of Abraham. It's people. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So what was it about the death of Jesus that broke the grip of Satan on us and set us free from the tyranny of fear and death? Well, the answer is he made propitiation for our sin. Now, there's a reason why the Bible gives us this term, propitiation. Why? This is such a phenomenal, unbelievable word. And it's a word that we don't use all the time, but it's a very important word because it's, a, it's an accounting word. And here's why it's so important. Because when Jesus says that he became mer the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, that what that's saying is, is that Jesus, listen, he didn't, Jesus didn't uh, call Satan on his cell phone and negotiate a settlement for your sin. That's not what he did. He didn't, he didn't do like, you know, the, the, the guy does when you, because you have a debt with the IRS, so he calls and negotiates a lesser payment and says, look, if I just make one payment, can I pay less? Or your credit card debt, we're going to talk it down. Or we're gonna... Jesus didn't, didn't get a reduction or cut a deal. You know what he did? He paid every single 
thing that was owed, past, present, and future. In other words, he went meticulously through the books of all the debt that you'd amassed, and he settled, 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 paid in full, paid in full, paid in full. Every single one. He didn't skip over any. He didn't miss any. He didn't jump across some. He didn't just hit the high points or the big ones. You didn't just make the grade. It's a hundred percent resolved. That's what propitiation is. He had to become like us. He's the great high priest because he made propitiation for our sins and because he himself suffered when tempted then he's able to move into where we are. So it means that at his death, he suffered and endured and satisfied in himself the wrath and judgment that was due unto sinful men and women. He took all that on himself. Now again, we say that, well, Jesus paid the penalty for my sin, but listen, all of it, I mean all of it, He paid the penalty for the things you didn't even know were sin. You didn't even know. He paid that. Paid all of it. So you see, the only thing that makes any sense about fearing death would be the fear of the unknown. Well, that makes sense. See, if I don't know, then I'd be afraid of that. I'd be afraid of what I don't know because what I don't know, my imagination can wreak havoc in. So that makes sense. Or the fear of wrath. But you see, neither one of those is a, is a fear for us. There, we know what comes next. And we've been freed from wrath. There's no wrath and we know what's there. We know what awaits us. So I don't fear death because there's no wrath that awaits me. Instead, Jesus awaits me. You see? We so so this is just this is just like pouring fuel on your spiritual life. Just saying, the the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen. I know you're struggling. I know you're suffering. I know you're being persecuted. I know you're filled with all these doubts. Let me explain something to you. Jesus is not ashamed of you. And therefore, you don't need to be afraid of, you don't need to be hindered by not being enough or not knowing what to do or how to, listen, he's not, he, and and it's not just that he'll accept you or admit to you, but he will broadcast the fact that you belong to him. So you can just be propelled every day to be the ambassador that he called you to be. And furthermore, while everyone around you is running around freaked out and scared by death, you got nothing to worry about. Because you don't have a fear of the unknown and you don't have a fear of wrath. So it's a transition from where you are to something infinitely better infinitely better so there's no fear so you're fully accepted there's nothing to fear so let's be clear about what this does not mean when Christ renders powerless this one who had the power of death it does not mean that Christians won't die physically and oftentimes painfully that's not what it means you see we shouldn't be rattled by that You shouldn't be rattled by the death of believers. You don't want to be the person running around all disgruntled with your heavenly father because God allowed Naboth to be swindled out of his vineyard. Who's the big winner? You think Naboth lost out on the deal with Ahab to get a better vineyard or amount of money or... I mean, come on. Listen. Naboth is dancing around in circles on 
vineyards that are endless and perfect in every way. He's so removed from the junk he left behind. God in his grace and mercy. So you know what? We're going to die physically and oftentimes painfully. And you know what we need to do? We need to prepare ourselves now. You need to mentally prepare yourself now. That when that time comes for you and however that time comes, that you seize that opportunity to glorify your heavenly Father in the most remarkable and wonderful way you can. Because the world that is so afraid of death is watching that moment like you can't believe. And so people ask me a lot of times, you know, like it's, it's got to, you know, all funerals got, have, must be so hard. Well, they're hard, but they're good. I mean, yes, they're hard. When I have absolute confidence about where somebody is, what an opportunity that is. Because the world's filled with people that are petrified of death. And so if you get the opportunity and the privilege to, to pass, to transition from this life into eternity for the glory of God, boy, Take it. Make the most of it. Because nowhere will, your, will your, your, your belief and your peace and your confidence be more impactful to the unbelievers around you. So that Satan doesn't have the power over death anymore, that doesn't mean we're not going to die physically or painfully. It simply means that they need not die fearfully or fretfully because they don't die unforgiven. The opportunity for us is to say goodbye. And you know how much I hate saying goodbye. But it's not goodbye forever. It's just goodbye for now. For now. And if it is goodbye forever, then my hope is as I'm transitioning, that changes for you that it's not forever. You see, that, that, that moment where you as the Lord's brother or sister maybe laying in that hospital bed on the brink of eternity and that unbelieving family member around you. Now, you might have shared the gospel with them 10,000 times, and you might have sent every track to them and, and, and every possible Bible story or thing you could think of for the last whoever knows how many years. But listen, in that moment, when your life here is slipping away, you have an opportunity that only comes in that moment. I think about how many people are brothers and sisters in Christ because they watch someone they love very dearly pass away with an unexplainable peace and confidence. And now they're part of the family. It happens all the time. I would say close to half of the adults that get baptized in this fellowship somewhere in their testimony is that story about their grandmother, their grandfather, or their mom or their dad or somebody and watching them pass away so wrecked them because they knew that if it was them laying in that bed they wouldn't be there wouldn't be any peace and so don't don't fear that 
So on the other side of this life is one thing and one thing only. A smiling and loving and joyful God who has forgiven me of all my sin and reconciled me to himself and has made me a child of his forever. That's what's waiting. So look, we're stuck here in the tent. But trust me, Naboth or anybody else is not worrying about no raggedy, uh, weed-infested, thorn-ridden vineyard that he had in this life. Mm -mm. No. It's just us. So tomorrow, could we wake up tomorrow morning... Maybe the first thoughts that cross your mind is, hey, guess what? God's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you. So let's get after it. Go out there and be an ambassador. And don't worry. He's proud to call you his brother or sister. You're part of the family. And whatever you're going through, he knows. He had to become just like you. What an encouragement. What a difference it could make. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the gospel, Lord. We thank you for the reality of this.